This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran, giving you eternal answers to challenging questions and providing reasons for faith in Christ. You don't need to go anywhere. You're about to hear a riveting Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. He's got some special guests, and we're going to be talking about evolution, among other things. Pat? Yeah, this month we're talking about faith and science. Do they contradict or do they complement one another? And with me uh, this week is two fantastic guests. The first is Dr. Ray Bolin. Ray Bolin is at Probe Ministries, and Ray is our scientist on staff. He holds a Ph.D. in molecular biology from the University of Texas at Dallas. And also with us today is author and scientist uh, Jonathan Wells. Jonathan Wells holds a Ph.D. from Yale University in Religious Studies and a Ph.D. in Cell Biology from the University of California at Berkeley. Welcome to the show, guys. Glad to be here. Well, we're talking about evolution and intelligent design this month. Define for us what we mean by evolution. Many say evolution is simply change over time or descent with modification. Uh, what do we mean when we're talking about Darwinian evolution? Well, Pat, when people use the word evolution, you essentially have to have the individual who's just used the word define it for you because, as you just indicated, evolution can mean a number of different things. Uh, Evolution sometimes means change over time. Sometimes evolution refers to just the process that Darwin uh, uh, elucidated called natural selection. Or sometimes it will mean the idea that all animal life, animal and plant life, is descended from a single common ancestor. But oftentimes, as you read the literature, whether it's in newspapers or textbooks or even uh, scientific journal articles, um, they they switch from one definition to the other without really telling you. They will define evolution as change over time, and before you know it, they're talking about evolution in a larger sense of all descended from a common ancestor. Um, so there really is no one definition, and you have to be sure, if you're in a conversation with someone about evolution, you have to make sure that both of you are talking about the same thing. Yeah, and Jonathan, uh, if evolution meant change over time, then we're all evolutionists, aren't we? But when we're talking Darwinian evolution, we're talking something a little different, aren't we? Absolutely. I don't know anybody who says that things don't change over time. At least I've never met anybody like that. But Darwin's theory was much more specific, as Ray just said. Uh, specifically, his theory included both the idea that all organisms are descended from a common ancestor and the idea that the differences are mainly due to natural selection or survival of the fittest. Yeah, well, why don't you tell us what we mean by intelligent design? Both of you are members of the Discovery Institute, senior fellows and members. And uh, the uh, what we're promoting at the Discovery Institute is the whole idea of intelligent design. Mm -hmm. What do we mean by that? Well, intelligent design um, essentially is saying that as we look out into the natural world, whether it's in um, astronomy or biology or even chemistry, physics, that what we can detect is evidence of intelligence. Uh, when we look at biological organisms specifically, um, what we're looking at at the moment specifically are some of the molecular machines, is how biologists refer to them, in the cell. Uh, and can we detect, can we say that these things have been designed or not? Uh, are they a result of a natural process, such as natural selection and mutation over time? Do they look like they've been pieced together slowly, gradually, or do they look like all the pieces had to have been put together at one time, and therefore they have to be designed? Uh, the scientific idea of intelligent design really only goes that far. Um, simply trying to say, can we scientifically determine if this is designed or not designed? Yeah, many will uh, 
put uh, intelligent design and label it as a religious movement. Is it really a religious movement here? I think not necessarily. Uh, as Ray said, scientifically, it only goes so far as to say this appears to require the act of an intelligent designer or it doesn't. Not everything has to be designed. Intelligent design merely says some things appear to be, so let's consider the possibility that they really are. Now, the problem is this conflicts with Darwinian evolution as commonly understood, which rules out intelligent design entirely and says everything happened without the action of an intelligent designer. So we have a conflict here, and it's actually the Darwinists who typically label intelligent design as a religious idea. I see. Well, is there a possibility that maybe someone will try to put the two together in a view called theistic evolution? Does it really have to be uh, an opposing Darwinian evolution and intelligent design? I don't know if it really has to be, uh, Pat, but it, it does tend to, to fall out that way. Um, those who you would describe use the term theistic evolution. What that usually describes is an individual who does believe in the existence of God, but that God simply used the evolutionary process as his means to create. And for many of those who call themselves theistic evolutionists today, they specifically mean a process which was unguided. Uh, so not even saying that God guided evolution, but they say some God simply allowed evolution. He put the pieces in place to allow evolution to do it on its own. And God doesn't really intervene in that sense. So they would still be looking at things in the cell or organisms in general or the various um, parameters in, in uh, how our universe is constructed and say, God didn't design it that way. He just designed it in the very beginning to just unroll, if you will, in this way. Um, so trying to even put the two together is not that easy to do. Actually, what Ray just described was probably Darwin's own view, that God may have started the ball rolling, but then after that left things to themselves. I see. Now, we see a lot of uh, opposition to intelligent design in the scientific community, and you touched on it a little bit, but why is there such strong opposition to uh, this whole idea of intelligent design? Well, there's a couple of things, I think, to that, Pat. Um, what I like to tell audiences particularly is... And that's, a, that's an understatement. I mean, it's vehement <laughs> <laughs> against it. But go ahead, Ray. Yeah. Um, is that there's far more to the evolution controversy than just a scientific question. There's no, no in my mind, there's no question about that. For many people um, who are from a naturalistic worldview, say, um, their entire worldview depends on some form of evolution. If they're already saying that all that exists is uh, molecules, matter, energy, space, interacting over time, then some form of evolution has to be true. And if individuals are coming along and saying, well, but we see evidence of design in the world from an outside source, whatever that source could be, well, that disrupts the foundation for their entire view of life, how they live their life, their whole moral structure. And so the way people get so vociferous and angry about this, I think, goes down to that deeper level. It's not just a scientific issue. I think that's the key. Uh, there are religious implications on both sides of the debate here. And often intelligent design is portrayed as the religious viewpoint when actually the Darwinian viewpoint uh, also has profound religious implications, often unstated. Now, both of you are well-qualified scientists. Uh, how did you come uh, being steeped in 
the academic world based on a naturalistic worldview and Darwinian evolution. How did you come to realize that? Well, maybe Darwinian evolution has some flaws. Maybe intelligent design does have some substance here. How do you tell us a little bit about your journey? Well, I had to had to come across this information from a from a different source. Uh, I was a uh, undergraduate student, a zoology major at the University of Illinois, and was browsing through a bookstore, and I simply saw a little booklet that was titled "Evidence Against Evolution," and I just thought to myself, "Huh, I didn't know there was any." And so I just picked it off the shelf and just started to browse my way through it. And uh, it was written by um, a creationist, Dwayne Gish, and found myself getting a little bit upset because I was learning things I had never heard before. Not so much that I felt there was a grand conspiracy going on, but I thought, why hasn't this information been communicated to me before? I thought we had all the intermediate forms. I thought the evidence was just crystal clear that evolution was the case. I always had my own personal reservations, but scientifically I just saw nothing to deal with. Um, and so that started me, okay, there's got to be more information than this. And so I started picking up books. I started reading. In fact, it was just one book after another for at least several years. Uh, and was just astounded at the material I was able to learn, the things I found out about the natural world and the lack of evidence for evolution. And so from that time, and that was back in 1974, um, <clears throat> it's been a lifelong pursuit ever since. How about you, Dr. Wells? Well, 1974 seems to be the important year here. I was uh, a confirmed Darwinist uh, coming out of undergraduate school where I studied science and a lot of geology. Uh, around 1973-74, I had a religious conversion that convinced me that God had to be behind what I was seeing in the universe. And as a scientist, uh, I began looking then, well, what, why did I get this impression that there was no design? And uh, the first thing I looked at was Darwin's mechanism, natural selection and random mutations. And the more I learned, the more I realized that the evidence for it was much thinner than I had been led to believe. But for a long time, I still accepted Darwin's idea that we all have a common ancestor. Humans and fish, for example, and worms have a common ancestor. Until I went to Berkeley and started studying biology. When I got to see the actual evidence for that part of Darwin's theory, then I became a total skeptic, because that evidence isn't there either. Well, what are uh, some of the flaws you saw in Darwinian evolution as you folks studied? And maybe there's still flaws to this day that really haven't been addressed or answered. Well, I think some of the things that uh, got my attention initially um, and still exist today in many different ways um, is the lack of what are called transitional forms between major groups of uh, animals and the, even plants. But animals specifically is where the, the major contention is. Now, when we look into the, the paleontological record, we look at the fossils, um, if Darwin's theory was true, then if it's such a slow, gradual process, as we look back into Earth history, we should see a slow, gradual revelation of new forms and different types and just slow, methodical changes from era to era. But that's not what we see. There are a few examples that Darwinists today can point to of potential transitional series, uh, much more so than there was even 20 years ago. Um, but still, it's a rare event. When they find one, when they find a new, quote, intermediate or a missing link, as they like to call it, um, it's big news. Yeah, it really is. And we want to continue with that point right there. When we come back, you're listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuccarat.
And now, back to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. Pat, we're having a fascinating discussion on evolution with two eminent scientists and experts in this area. Yes, we are. We're here with Dr. Jonathan Wells and Dr. Ray Bolin, both fellows of the uh, Discovery Institute. And we were talking earlier about as both men studied in, uh, at the university campus in their fields of science, they discovered some major flaws with Darwinian evolution. Ray Bolin alluded to the lack of transitional forms. And Dr. Wells, what about you? What are some flaws you saw in your studies? Well, when I was a biology graduate student at Berkeley in, uh, starting in the late 1980s, the first thing I noticed was uh, that a famous picture uh, in textbooks that's supposed to provide evidence for Darwin's theory of embryos, embryos of animals with backbones such as mm -hmm. ourselves, uh, didn't fit the evidence. The picture supposedly shows that these embryos look very similar in their early stages, and this Darwin himself thought was very good. In fact, he called it the strongest evidence for his theory. In other words, theory. a chicken, wow. a pig, and a fish, and a human all look very, uh, look very similar during the embryo stage? That's the picture. Okay. But the pictures were faked in the 19th century. When I saw the actual embryos as a graduate student, I realized that the pictures were false. They completely misrepresent the evidence in various ways. But the main thing is, for me, that shook my faith in the Darwinian idea of common ancestry as soon as I started seeing the evidence. Let me add that I think Darwin's theory works at two very limited levels. First of all, common ancestry works within a species. I don't doubt that all human beings come from a common ancestor. The question is, do human beings and fish come from a common ancestor? I no longer believe that. Second of all, Natural selection happens. Uh, there is such a thing as survival of the fittest. But where does it get you? As far as I can tell from the evidence, it doesn't get you any farther than artificial selection, domestic breeding, which can make dramatic changes in species over time, but it doesn't get you new species. So we see that there's some flaws in evolution, and we will go over that next week with Dr. Jonathan Wells. But what are some empirical signs of intelligent design out there in the universe or in biology well those are uh, <clears throat> growing all the time Pat um, astronomers today as they look out into the universe are seeing a uh, universe constructed in a very precise and specific way uh, to allow a universe that that can uh, support life uh, from the very basic constructs and constants of the universe itself, the four basic forces of uh, the strong and weak nuclear force, gravity, electromagnetism, uh, the equations for those are very precise, very specific. If uh, the constants are, are changed by just 1 or 2 percent, uh, we wouldn't have a universe here. Um, just the Earth itself, uh, our distance from the sun, uh, the makeup of our atmosphere, um, <clears throat> the revolutions uh, for that allow for a 24-hour day, uh, the tilt of the axis, um, the one we have one moon, not two or three, not zero. All these things begin to add up. They all have an effect on life here on Earth. The fact that Jupiter and uh, Saturn are out there that help stabilize the orbit of Earth. Uh, all these things are necessary for life on Earth. And as uh, astronomers have begun to delve into this and say, well, what's the possibility for these kinds of uh, associations that come about just by chance, uh, the odds are astronomical. And uh, it just seems to be impossible that there's even another planet in the universe, not just our galaxy, but another planet in the universe that could possibly be hospitable to life. 
Yeah, I think the two things that need to be shown that there is intelligent design is complexity and specification, and indeed that's what we're seeing out there. Mm -hmm. The more we study the universe and biology and physics and all that, isn't that right? Mm -hmm. What it's, do you see, Dr. Wells, out there as compelling evidence for intelligent design? Well, it's interesting that you use the terms complexity and specification. Those are uh, from uh, a major intelligent design theorist, William Dembski, uh, and by that, if I can explain briefly, uh, by complexity, we mean something, of course, that's very complicated. But I could take a, a handful of Scrabble letters, you know, letters written on little pieces of wood, and throw them on the ground. And the pattern would be very complex, but there's no design there. Only when I line those letters up to make words is there design. And that's what Bill calls, Bill Dembski calls, specification. So you need both complexity and specification. And Ray just described that in the case of the solar system and the universe. Uh, another intelligent design theorist, Mike Behe, who's a biochemist at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, describes several cases of specified complexity in living cells in a book called Darwin's Black Box. He uses a mouse trap as in an analogy. Mm -hmm. You have five or six parts to a mouse trap. And if one of those is taken away, the whole mousetrap won't work. That's and correct. So it's, uh, is that an example of irreducible complexity? In other words, you can't reduce that mousetrap anymore or it won't work? That's uh, the example Mike uses to illustrate what he calls irreducible complexity. The examples he gives from living organisms, of course, are far more complicated. Yeah. For example, uh, the bacterial flagellum which is a little whip-like propeller on some bacteria that pushes them through fluid, uh, requires something on the order of 40 parts. And it's, it's a little microscopic rotary motor. It's absolutely amazing. We still don't understand it completely. But it can revolve at thousands of times per second. And uh, it requires all these parts to be in place in the right order before it works. And How that's the, the sort of world, thing that comes from design. How in the world would that happen outside of a designer? I, it just boggles the mind. Yeah, you know, both of you uh, face some very hostile arenas. What are some of the uh, most popular arguments out there right now in support of Darwinian evolution attacking the intelligent design arguments? Uh, Ray Boland and Jonathan Wells are religious fanatics. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is that okay. primarily it? There's uh, really no... Anymore, that's just about the best they've got. Uh, uh, at the recent uh, textbook hearings here in Texas... Uh, what we heard again and again is that anybody who challenges evolutionary theory either has a religious or political agenda because there is no scientific evidence they will tell you that disputes evolution. Well, let me say this. I've read one critique, uh, Dr. Wells, of your book, and this is what it amounted to, and it's from uh, Eugenie Scott's organization. You criticize homology as an icon of evolution, that uh, it's being misused and so forth, and, and maybe we can define it later. But the, the, here was the critique from a scientist with this organization who's an evolutionist. If uh, uh, Dr. Wells understood homology, then he wouldn't have said that. <laughs> In other words, okay, then you wait for the, 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 correct, the correction, but it doesn't come. And it's, it's, it's an answer of, well, if you really understood that, then you wouldn't have said that. Okay, well then, 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 in, then please enlighten us. Help me understand, please. Yeah, help me understand at this point, and we'll have a dialogue. But there is silence. Now that's ridiculous. You know. Anyway, 
Well, it's certainly not science. I mean, in science, uh, supposedly, we look at a theory, we look at the evidence, and we try to decide if the two fit. If the theory doesn't fit the evidence, you discard it. Well, it seems to me that it's time to discard at least the larger, more comprehensive version of Darwinian evolution because it doesn't fit the evidence. What I find with that with that style of argumentation, what I think is uh, we're beginning to see more and more, is there's a, there's a greater reliance on authority. He's able to say that because he has an academic position somewhere or he's got his Ph.D. and you should trust him hmm. because he's a scientist and he knows better. Um, and so they simply will will reel off their qualifications, where they teach, where they what they publish, perhaps, and say, therefore, you should believe me. It's just the argument from authority. Therefore, they shouldn't have to explain it to you. What they'll often say is, well, if I tried to explain it to you, you probably wouldn't understand. It's very condescending. It's very arrogant. But what we also sense with that is we're making some progress. If that's the best they're able to do, because they don't want to get in a discussion of the evidence. They really don't. And so we're beginning to sense a little bit more of a of a desperateness, if you will, the more they rely on that kind of argumentation. Well, yeah, these organizations are really encouraging evolutionists not to debate mm -hmm. people in the intelligent design or creation. Well, and they're, and they're here in Texas this week to convince the State Board of Education not to let students know about the controversies. They don't want this in the, in the biology classroom. Well, both of you as uh, scientists who've gone through the rigors of the academics, what advice would you be giving to young men uh, going into science who may hold a belief in the Bible and intelligent design? Uh, what advice would you give them as far as the challenges they're going to face and how to, uh, in, in, in all the teachings that they're going to get, how to really see through the arguments but also be able to learn the system well? A couple of things, Pat. It's a good question, and, and I, in talking with young people, try to encourage them to, uh, first of all, not be afraid to understand evolutionary theory as it's taught as best you can. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no, when you're answering a question on a test or you're writing a paper and you're saying, well, according to evolutionary theory, this is how it's supposed to work. Uh, you're simply demonstrating your knowledge, your understanding. But at the same time, uh, I encourage students to be willing to ask questions. Uh, when they see something that doesn't fit, uh, don't get up and give a little speech saying how this doesn't work. Simply get up and ask an innocent question. Well, I, th I thought this was the way it was supposed to happen, and now I see this kind of evidence. Can you explain to me how this works within evolution? And get them to respond and defend themselves, but in a very non-threatening manner. What I have found is that evolutionists will tend to be very much more open and honest if they don't feel like they're being attacked. And you can get a lot better information and sometimes a lot greater admission in that kind of context. Yeah, and I, you know, being a public speaker, enjoy it when people ask questions in that manner because it shows they're paying attention, mm -hmm. you know, and they're interested in what I'm saying. Yeah. Philip Johnson, who wrote a very good book about this, uh, written several very good books, uh, starting with Darwin on trial, uh, calls it Tuning Up Your Baloney Detector. And like Ray, I would advise students to uh, learn the stuff, uh, be able to restate it accurately, be respectful, but keep your baloney detector turned on. Know how and when to spot evidence that doesn't fit the theory you're being taught. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. Be sure to join us next time for the continuation to this exciting show. If you found this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. 
for the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. <laughs>